Welcome to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. This is where we take a chapter-by-chapter approach to the scriptures that are assigned by the Come Follow Me curriculum of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My name is Barry Hillam, and I hope that this podcast will be a benefit to you. In each episode, you will hear a short flyover summary for the scriptural chapter in question, followed by a verse-by-verse reading that is supplemented with commentary from parallel passages of scripture and from modern-day prophets. You might consider adjusting the playback speed in your favorite podcast player. With that, I'm glad you're with me. Let's get started. First Nephi chapter 7 incredibly begins with instructions from Lehi to his sons to return again to the city of Jerusalem. It seems that the dust has settled for long enough from the previous trip for Lehi and his family to spend some time with the plates of brass and learn about their contents. And we feel ready as readers to move further into the wilderness and closer to the promised land with this family now that they have obtained this record. However, there is yet one more requirement and another critical reason surfaces for the brothers to return to Jerusalem. Now that they have secured the word and will not lose their sense of language and civilization and will not lose the power of the covenant in their lives as a consequence and go the way of the Mulekites, they're still faced with the task of beginning a new civilization. And this, as we learn, is to be done within the framework of families. Lehi's sons, as it says in verse 1, need to take daughters to wife that they might raise up seed unto the Lord in the land of promise. We'll discuss the significance of that in more detail. This instruction is found in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 7. Then we find very quickly after that that Ishmael is uh, um, softened, as it says in verse 5, and his family uh, quickly, it seems, Uh, complies with Lehi's wishes and with the Lord's wishes, and they embark upon a journey into the wilderness with Lehi's sons. In verse 6 and 7, a plan by some to defect and return to Jerusalem is hatched. The plan is, is even less innocuous than that because really, as it says in verse 7, it's a rebellion We then find Nephi's response in verses 8 through 15. And then we find how the defectors, led, of course, by Laman and Lemuel, how they respond in verses 16 through 19. In their apparent frustration, and probably as part of their original plan to rebel, they bind Nephi. Through the power of faith, as the chapter heading says, 
but more specifically, as we learn from the text in verse 7, through the power of the Lord, which Nephi actuated through his faith, his bounds were his bands were burst. The conflict between these opposing parties is ultimately resolved, and in verse 22, all return back to the wilderness, once again to the tent of Lehi. And so, in some ways, this trip is like the previous, where there is an acquisition, we might say, that involves the agency of others. There is a series of miracles, and there is a series of internal strife and conflict that is ultimately resolved before all return uh, to Lehi. Or I should say the brothers return to Lehi, and the family of Ishmael goes to Lehi's tent and becomes integral to this expedition to the Promised Land. With that, we move to the first section where Lehi um, gives this instruction to his sons. Verse 1 reads, And now I would that ye might know that after my father Lehi had made an end of prophesying concerning his seed. So we're hearkening back to the end of 1 Nephi chapter 5, where Lehi was prophesying about his seed, and it says he prophesied many things. It came to pass that the Lord spake unto him again. We know what's about to follow here, as it says the Lord spake unto him again. And it, it makes us think of the almost relentless quality of these ongoing dreams and visions and communications from the Lord that Lehi has been receiving throughout this narrative and the burden that is placed upon Lehi to obey these commands and to convey them to his posterity and to gently persuade them to obey the Lord's commands as well. We can think of many other instances in Scripture where the Lord's commands seem almost relentless. Most of them take place within the framework of an exile story such as this. We can think of the period of time that uh, Moses and the children of Israel wandered and the exacting nature of the commandments that they were to follow while on the Sinai Peninsula. We can think in our own dispensation of the trek westward from Nauvoo, the, the difficulty of that journey, the relentless nature of that, and then a requirement is made on top of that for many to march with the Mormon battalion. We may feel sometimes in our own lives when we put ourselves in a state of communication with God, that the requirements coming from Him can have a relentless quality to them. We can take comfort in scriptures that teach us about His tendency to teach us and to refine us through chastening. Despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of Him, says the author of Hebrews in chapter 12, verse 5. Then in verse 7, he says, If ye endure chastening, 
God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? And then in verse 11, Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. We could imagine Lehi feeling chastened in this instance and sensing the relentless quality of the Lord's commands and perhaps of his timing. It, it can't be, I don't think, that this is the first time that it occurred to Lehi that it would be necessary to raise up seed unto the Lord in the land of promise. It is likely something that had been on his mind from the beginning of his journey and had very likely been a point of prayer and communication with God. He had had plenty of time to think about this need. It's likely then that this is an issue of timing and that the Lord is finally answering Lehi's prayer according to the wisdom of his own timing and telling him now to send his sons to Jerusalem so that families might be. And I say families might be in that way because I'm remembering a statement by Russell M. Nelson, and I'll read a longer one in a few minutes, where he said that the earth was created that families might be, and intimated in that 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 is related to why it is that Malachi says that the whole earth would be wasted at his coming if families had not been linked together through the covenant. It seems in a way that this is a type of that greater concept and that greater doctrine that President Nelson has taught us, that this exodus of Lehi's family would be for naught as well and would in a way be utterly wasted if families were not raised up unto the Lord as they entered the land of promise. And so here's what the Lord tells Lehi in verse 1. The Lord spake unto him again, saying, that it was not meet for him, Lehi, that he should take his family into the wilderness alone, but that his sons should take daughters to wife, that they might raise up seed unto the Lord in the land of promise. Here's an extension, then, of this teaching by President Russell M. Nelson, when in a talk um, many years back uh, called The Creation in General Conference, he said, This earth is but one of many creations over which God presides, Worlds without number have I created, he said, and I also created them for mine own purpose, and by the Son I created them, which is mine only begotten. Grand as it is, planet Earth is part of something even grander, that great plan of God. Simply summarized, the Earth was created that families might be. Scripture explains that a husband and wife shall be one flesh, and all this that the Earth might answer the end of its creation." And, as part of the planned destiny of the earth and its inhabitants, here our kindred dead are also to be redeemed. Families are to be sealed together for all eternity. A welding link is to be forged between the fathers and the children. In our time, a whole, complete, and perfect union of all dispensations, keys, and powers is to be welded together. For these sacred purposes, holy temples now dot the earth." That's from April 2000, General Conference. And so we read in verse 2, And it came to pass 
that the Lord commanded him that I, Nephi, and my brethren should again return unto the land of Jerusalem and bring down Ishmael and his families into the wilderness. The word down here is used consistent with the direction and topography of travel uh, to and from the wilderness and Jerusalem, which is interesting. In this instance, there's, there's no uh, record of murmuring when this requirement is made. We don't hear any opposition from Laman and Lemuel in Nephi's record. There's some humor in this, I think, when you think of, of, of their likely desire to be married. However, if you look a layer underneath that and really imagine uh, that it would have been a deep and sincere desire of all involved parties in this journey to have a spouse, uh, this assignment surely uh, spoke to Nephi, Sam, Laman, and Lemuel deeply. Uh, they had their goodly parents as models, Lehi and Sariah, and they would have understood intuitively that in order for them to have and become what Lehi and Sariah had become, they too needed a marriage. This would not only have been a point of prayer for Lehi and a matter of deep and righteous desire for him, but it would have been for all of his sons and undoubtedly Laman and Lemuel as well. So while there's a whimsical element to this in the narrative with a lack of murmuring, there's also a beautiful and critical doctrine. President Spencer W. Kimball had a wonderful way of describing the need for eternal marriage. He said, quote, That is the gateway to exaltation. And the Lord says through John, and this is John chapter 10, verse 1, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. Unquote. In fact, there is only one door. You all know it. Only one door, no other. And that is eternal marriage. For no soul will enter the portals of exaltation alone. There will be no singles. There will always be doubles. And those doubles will be a man and a woman who will love each other intensely and who will have adjusted themselves to each other in a totaling perfection. Nothing short of that. That's from an excerpt, or, or that is from an address, that's an excerpt from address to religious educators in um, 1968 at uh, BYU. It was called Charge to Religious Educators. The implications of what President Kimball are teaching are stunning because really, uh, much like with the statement, it is not good for man to be alone, he's not only teaching us about us and what it takes to be exalted, but he is therefore teaching us about the nature of God himself and the holy and celestial nature of the union between man and woman and 
in the context of eternal marriage. That then is a consideration of of um, the the priority uh, for marriage for for these sons of Lehi. Uh, however, there's something else happening here because of uh, Ishmael's apparent and likely familial connections with Lehi and his family. Here's a very helpful excerpt from the Ogden Skinner commentary. Our tradition that Ishmael's ancestry went back to Ephraim, son of Joseph, is based on a discourse given by Elder Erastus Snow in Logan, Utah, on the 6th of May in 1882. He said, The prophet Joseph informed us that the record of Lehi was contained on the 116 pages that were first translated and subsequently stolen, and of which an abridgment is given us in the first book of Nephi, which is the record of Nephi individually, he himself being of the lineage of Manasseh, but that Ishmael was of the lineage of Ephraim, and that his sons married into Lehi's family, and Lehi's sons married Ishmael's daughters. From, this commentary continues, Elder Snow's statement, and from 1 Nephi chapter 7, verse 6, we may suppose that two of Ishmael's sons had married daughters of Lehi and Sariah. That would mean the two families were already related by marriage, which might explain Lehi's seeming nonchalance about instructing his sons to bring Ishmael's family down into the wilderness. Those married children of Lehi and Ishmael could already have had some daughters of their own who could later marry Lehi's sons. Jacob and Joseph, born in the wilderness. There might already have been additional marriage plans between the two families. Only the setting for the ceremonies would now have to change from the city to the desert. Another reason why Ishmael's family in particular was elected to join Lehi's was that Ishmael had five unmarried daughters. The four sons of Lehi, along with Zoram, would in time marry Ishmael's daughters, a perfect five-way match set up in advance by the Lord. The, the full statement by Elder Erastus Snow, by the way, can be found in uh, a Daniel Ludlow companion to your study of the Book of Mormon. Uh, and, and the end of that is interesting uh, because Elder Snow quotes the 48th chapter of Genesis. So he says, uh, Ishmael was of the lineage of Ephraim and that his sons married into Lehi's family. And Lehi's sons married Ishmael's daughters, thus fulfilling the words of Jacob upon Ephraim and Manasseh in the 48th chapter of Genesis, which says, quote, And let my name be named on them, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the land. Unquote. Thus these descendants of Manasseh and Ephraim grew together upon this American continent. All right, for the need, so, so now that we have the need for these two families to come together, fully established, we can now see how this plays out in verses 3 through 5. Verse 3 says, And it came to pass that I, Nephi, did again with my brethren go forth into the wilderness to go up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass that we went up unto the house of Ishmael, and we did gain favor in the sight of Ishmael, insomuch that we did speak unto him the words of the Lord. The word insomuch could probably be replaced with, and here is how. So we could say, 
in verse 4, we did gain favor in the sight of Ishmael, and here is how, colon, we did speak unto him the words of the Lord. More on that in just a moment, but it's it's good, I think, to pause here and and appreciate once again Nephi's understatement. There is so much happening here. This is so monumental uh, that these brothers went back to Jerusalem and that this family was willing to join them. And uh, we wonder just how this was done. And it looks like the words of the Lord were a critical piece to that. Uh, the plates previously on their previous trip were, were ultimately obtained with a heavy hand. Um, that, too, is an understatement when we consider the way that Nephi ultimately obtained the brass plates. In this case, a heavy hand would not have worked in persuading Ishmael, and uh, certainly not in persuading uh, your future wife to join you into the wilderness. And so this was a daunting task in a different way, this particular journey to Jerusalem. Verse 5 says, And it came to pass that the Lord did soften the heart of Ishmael. So in verse 4, Nephi says, We did gain favor. But then he shifts the focus and the credit to the Lord in verse 5, which is significant. Did soften the heart of Ishmael and also his household, insomuch that they took their journey with us down into the wilderness to the tent of our father. No small thing either that his entire household was willing to do the same. What is Nephi teaching us here in these passages then? One thing he's teaching us is, I think, who should be credited with Ishmael being softened. It's clearly the Lord. He's also showing us that the mechanics or the medium or the tool for this softening was the word. The power of the word is is what created this softening effect. We might think of this uh, wonderful thing that Alma says in Alma chapter 31, um, verse 5, And now, as the preaching of the word had a great tendency to lead the people to do that which was just, yea, it had more powerful effect upon the minds of the people than the sword. Think again of what Nephi had to do with Laban, but this time the sword would not work in uh, persuading Ishmael to come along. So, a more powerful effect upon the minds of the people than the sword or anything else which had happened unto them. Therefore Alma thought it was expedient that they should try the virtue of the word of God. I think that's uh, that's a really a great verse. And, and virtue, that word can translate to power as well. So try the power of the word of God. I don't mean str- translate in the strict sense, since with the Book of Mormon we're not looking at alternate translations from, from the Greek or the Hebrew uh, but we can also think of the word virtue as being a, a, um, a concept of power and a concept of truth. All of that, of course, relates to the power of the word. So this is all we're told, and, and undoubtedly Ishmael's family did as Lehi's family did, and they left their riches behind and packed their provisions and caravaned together into the wilderness. The word journeyed is what is used in verse 6, and we find that things take a very poor turn uh, as this 
something like a 12 to 14 day, 180 to 200 mile journey commences. So we don't know where they're at in their journey, but we discover this in verse 6. And it came to pass that as we journeyed in the wilderness, behold, Laman and Lemuel and two of the daughters of Ishmael, uh, and the two sons of Ishmael and their families. That's the thing, by the way, that suggests to us that perhaps Lehi and Sarai had daughters that were married to Ishmael's sons prior to this trip. They did rebel against us. So again, that's Laman and Lemuel and, and two daughters of Ishmael who had, had allied themselves with Laman and Lemuel. So presumably those who would be married to Laman and Lemuel. And then the two sons and their families and they rebelled against me, Nephi and Sam, and their father, Ishmael and his wife, and his three other daughters. A lot of this serves as a type. We can find many types in this uh, overall exile story. And here we see a fractional rebellion. That's something to think on for a moment. Uh, that, that is a reflection, of course, of the archetypal rebellion of Lucifer. And in fact, the word rebellion is used in verse 7, and it came to pass in the which rebellion they were desirous to return unto the land of Jerusalem. So this is a step beyond murmuring, where um, those who are in opposition to this journey and this plan are, are, are stating their opposing views in a subtle way, uh, or perhaps a sarcastic way, or muttered under their breath, this is an organized and forceful move that Nephi is characterizing as a rebellion. Uh, again, uh, this, I think, can be seen at least as reminiscent, if not symbolic, of Lucifer's rebellion. And if that's the case, then it makes you wonder if Lucifer's fall from the heavens began ever so long ago with murmuring. As I've mentioned earlier, Nephi is intent, as he begins his record in these early chapters, to establish that murmuring has a way of taking you down the wrong path. Well, now that we understand this, let's go to verse 8. And now I, Nephi, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, therefore I spake unto them, saying, Remember, Nephi is relying on the word on this trip. Yea, even unto Laman and Lemuel, behold, ye are mine elder brethren, and how is it that ye are so hard in your hearts, and so blind in your minds, that ye have need that I, your younger brother, should speak unto you, yea, and set an example for you. Now Nephi moves into yet another persuasive monologue that he directs to his brothers. Uh, we've already read a few, and there will be more to come. But this one is a series of rhetorical questions that uh, would have certainly cut them to the center. He says in verse 9, How is it that ye have not hearkened unto the word of the Lord? Verse 10, here's the first of three, How is it that ye have forgotten? How is it that ye have forgotten that ye have seen an angel of the Lord? Verse 11, Yea, and how is it that ye have forgotten what great things the Lord hath done for us in delivering us out of the hands of Laban, and also that we should obtain the record? And verse 12, Yea, and how is it that ye have forgotten 
that if the Lord is able to do all things according to his will for the children of men, if it so be that they exercise faith in him, wherefore let us be faithful to him. Nephi teaches a critical, uh, while he's in this terrible situation, he teaches a critical doctrine about faith and how it is that it is actuated or how faith itself is an actuator of God's power. Interestingly, uh, and that's embodied in the use of the word if in verse 12. So the Lord is able to do all things according to his will for the children of men if. Now that's really an amazing condition to be placed upon the power of God, but it suggests that his redeeming and saving and gracious and enabling power is there and is available, but there is an actuator that has to be present in order for this power to be accessed. And, and that is faith. And that, it, more specifically, as Nephi said, is exercising faith. We, we can think of the woman who reaches out to touch the hem of the Savior's garment, for example. Uh, speaking of virtue, as we mentioned earlier, and how, how he says that virtue came out of him, or power came out of him. Without that actuating event of her reaching out in her desperation and touching the hem of his garment, that power would not have been accessed. That was the if that Nephi is using here. Now, amazingly, as this account goes on, Nephi will then demonstrate the teaching. So let's put that here uh, there as a placeholder, and then we'll notice later that Nephi is going to actually demonstrate that. Now, I want to mention these three statements of how is it that ye have forgotten for just a moment. Uh, Simply because later in the Book of Mormon record as we go on, we will encounter the word remember so many times. President Kimball once said, actually in the same address to religious educators in um, 1968 at BYU, he said, When you look in the dictionary for the most important word, do you know what that is? Uh, It could be remember. Because all of us have made covenants, our greatest need is to remember. That is why everyone goes to sacrament meeting every Sabbath day, to take the sacrament and listen to the priests pray that we may always remember him and keep his commandments which he has given us. Remember is the word Here's the first introduction of that concept in the Book of Mormon, of remembering, but it's phrased in the negative. How is it that ye have forgotten? Now moving to verse 13, Nephi's monologue goes on, And if it so be that we are faithful to him, we shall obtain the land of promise. Suggesting here, I think, that Nephi is speaking to their interests. Uh, As much as Laman and Lemuel did not want to leave Jerusalem, they probably were attracted to a land of promise, a land of milk and honey. Then he says, And ye shall know at some future period that the word of the Lord shall be fulfilled concerning the destruction of Jerusalem. For all things which the Lord hath spoken concerning the destruction of Jerusalem must be fulfilled. So there's the second argument. The first is a land of promise awaits. And the second argument is Jerusalem as you know it is not going to exist And then he expands on this in verse 14 by saying, For behold, the Spirit of the Lord ceaseth soon to strive with them. For behold, they have rejected the prophets, and Jeremiah have they cast into prison. 
and they have sought to take away the life of my father, insomuch that they have driven him out of the land. Now we get this sense earlier in the record that Lehi is being driven out of the land, but the the ostensible reason in the record for Lehi leaving is to do this great thing. It is to take his family into the wilderness. It is to start a new nation and civilization in the land of promise. Uh, but Nephi is expressing it in a different uh, and more concise way, uh, saying that it's also accurate to say that the people of Jerusalem drove Lehi out of the land. How does Nephi know at this point that Jeremiah has been imprisoned? Uh, maybe he learned that on this latest trip. Uh, that's possible. Maybe they all learned that. Or maybe it's something that they had known previously already. But we know that uh, because we can read it in the Old Testament. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 37, verse 15 says, Wherefore the princes were wroth with Jeremiah and smote him and put him in prison in the house of Jonathan the scribe, for they had made that the prison. We know that uh, a nation is certainly ripe with iniquity if they reject the prophets in the manner that they did in Lehi and Jeremiah's day. This is an important teaching for us in an era where there are living prophets. We tend to think of uh, a prophet uh, such as Lehi in a town square being pelted with stones, or we tend to think of a Samuel the Lamanite standing on the wall and having arrows directed towards him. Uh, But it's useful to stop and think about what the rejection of a prophet might look like in our modern times. Here are a few passages that deal with the uh, rejection of prophets within a society. Uh, Here is Helaman chapter 13, verses 24 through 27, uh, the words of Samuel the Lamanite. Yea, woe unto this people because of this time which has arrived, that ye do cast out the prophets and do mock them, and cast stones at them and do slay them, and do all manner of iniquity unto them, even as they did of old time. Interesting that he'd use the phrase of old time. And now when you talk, you say, If our days had been in the days of our fathers of old, we would not have slain the prophets. We would not have stoned them and cast them out. Behold, ye are worse than they. For as the Lord liveth, if a prophet come among you and declareth unto you the word of the Lord, which testifieth of your sins and iniquities, ye are angry with him, and cast him out and seek all manner of ways to destroy him. Yea, you will say that he is a false prophet, and that he is a sinner and of the devil, because he testifieth that your deeds are evil. But behold, if a man shall come among you and shall say, Do this, and there is no iniquity. Do that, and ye shall not suffer. Yea, he will say, Walk after the pride of your own hearts. Yea, walk after the pride of your eyes, and do whatsoever your heart desireth. And if a man shall come among you and say this, ye will receive him and say that he is a prophet. He's giving us insight there into what it might look like in our modern times to reject prophets. When the world is in that state, it is closer to the time that Noah lived in. Uh, Moses chapter 8 verse 17 said, My spirit shall not always strive with man. And this is what he said to Noah. For he shall know that all flesh shall die, yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. And if men do not repent, I will send in the floods upon them. 
Something similar was said about the Jaredites as they came to the end of their civilization. Ether chapter 15, verse 19, But behold, the Spirit of the Lord had ceased striving with them, and Satan had full power over the hearts of the people. For they were given up unto the hardness of their hearts and the blindness of their minds, that they might be destroyed, wherefore they went again to battle. So that's the state of things in Jerusalem, and unfortunately, it seems to be increasingly the state of Laman and Lemuel, who seem uh, continually to represent the attitudes and the spiritual state of those who had been left behind in Jerusalem. This is an interesting statement in the preface of the Doctrine and Covenants, uh, section 1, verse 33, And he that repents not, from him shall be taken even the light which he has received. For my spirit shall not always strive with man, saith the Lord of hosts. We can also think back to the book of Revelation and how it was that the blood of the prophets would cry up. And that's an expression that's used in the book of Mormon as well uh, to condemn the actions of a society who had rejected them. So Nephi knows that going back to Jerusalem for his brothers and for this faction of the children of Ishmael is a losing proposition, and he's doing his best to remind them of this here using the word of the Lord. Uh, How does he know it's a losing proposition? Well, once again, it's the prophecies that he's rehearsed to them in this passage. It's Lehi's prophetic gift that is helping him to see that. And it's probably the same as in our day when as the Savior said with the parable of the fig tree, that that we can see uh, the signs. Uh, Nephi would have had a sensitivity to that that his brothers may not have had, clearly did not have. So in verse 15 he says, Now behold, I say unto you that if ye will return unto Jerusalem, ye shall also perish with them. And now, if ye have choice, or in other words, ye have a choice, Uh, Go up to the land, and remember the words which I speak unto you, that if ye go, you will also perish, for thus the Spirit of the Lord constraineth me that I should speak. So ye have choice, Nephi is saying, and it's almost as though he's saying, go ahead, um, go ahead and go back to Jerusalem and and see how free you are if you go back. Uh, almost making you think of the story of Cain when he says that I'm I'm free. Uh, see how free you are. Nephi, like his father, could see the signs of this time, uh, and we can read about it with our perfect hindsight uh, when we read the Old Testament, a, a passage that, uh, in, in addition to the one in Jeremiah I read previously, uh, speaks specifically about the... Um, the, the, the downfall of the city of Jerusalem. It's in Second Kings chapter 25, verses 1 through 7, and, and the key phrase in there is that there was no bread for the people of the land, and the city was broken up, and Zedekiah's army was scattered. All things that would not have even seemed possible to Laman and Lemuel, who had uh, so much faith in this city. Uh, it's interesting when a parallel is drawn then to this rebellion of of these of these people and you draw a parallel between that and the rebellion of Lucifer himself that now Nephi is talking about choice here uh, 
this is a, an opportunity to read this uh, beautiful quote by Thomas S. Monson. Each of us has the responsibility to choose. You may ask, are decisions really that important? I say unto you, decisions determine destiny. You can't make eternal decisions without eternal consequences. This uh, brings us to the end of Nephi's monologue, and we find out how his brothers reacted, and, and those, of course, who were allied with them reacted. Verse 16, And it came to pass that when I, Nephi, had spoken these words unto my brethren, they were angry with me. And it came to pass that they did lay their hands upon me, for behold, they were exceedingly wroth. And they did bind me with cords, for they sought to take away my life, that they might leave me in the wilderness to be devoured by wild beasts. So that's their response to Nephi's suggestion that they are free. What irony. Uh, This chapter, in a way, is about the contrast, I think, between compulsion and and gentle persuasion. Uh, Both of those things are happening in abundance in this chapter. And in the end, one uh, wins out. Uh, That's something to think deeply about in this chapter. This uh, reaction by uh, Nephi's brothers to bind him may be spontaneous. They may be doing this in their frustration, but I think it's also possible that that was premeditated. This is a rebellion, and there was probably an element of planning with this rebellion. I think it would have taken some organization and some momentum for them to come to this point where they're, where they're binding him and following through with what uh, just a completely uh, barbarous plan. You, you have to ask at this point what it is that came over Laman and Lemuel. It's almost as though they're in a frenzy. This is a terrible idea to conceive of at all, to allow your brother to be devoured. It, it does certainly remind you of Joseph of old and his brothers. And, how, and it's so ironic uh, that Laman and Lemuel are acting something similar out in this case, there's there's just no doubt that the adversary was behind this. The, these brothers probably had a sense of righteous indignation. You might think of the way uh, Caiaphas and uh, others of the Sanhedrin uh, rend their garments and uh, in indignation at the things that the the Savior was saying in in his final hours uh, as as he stood before them in trial. They, too, seem to be whipped up into a frenzy. Nephi is done appealing to his brothers. He's tried that. So, in verse 17, he appeals straight to the Lord. Uh, Verse 17 says, But it came to pass that I prayed unto the Lord, saying, O Lord, according to my faith which is in thee, wilt thou deliver me from the hands of my brethren? Yea, even give me strength that I may burst these bands with which I am bound. Remember Nephi's earlier statement in verse 12, that the Lord is able to do all things according to his will for the children of men, if it so be that they exercise faith in him. Here then is when Nephi is dramatically uh, demonstrating this principle both to his brethren and to us as readers. 
the the idea that comes into his mind to be given strength to burst these bands, uh, I think is utterly remarkable. Uh, how did he think of this? Uh, this is great faith because this idea comes into his mind that that is even a possibility, that that's a way out. Uh, he has this type of relationship with the Lord, and that can be seen in previous incidents where Nephi goes way out on a limb, uh, like when he's interacting with Zoram in disguise, and the Lord sustains him by um, making Nephi plausible to Zoram and making it possible for him to, to, to follow through with his mission to get these plates. And, and here the Lord is sustaining him in such a dramatic way. Uh, but again, for Nephi to think of asking this, I, I think is really remarkable. This gives us an opportunity to think about faith for a moment. And, and, and the chapter heading does say that it is the faith of Nephi that broke these bands. I'd like to amend that, however, by looking at verse 17 and seeing that it is the Lord who broke those bands. Uh, and and that, that the Lord did that because of Nephi's faith. This, I believe, is a subtle uh, point that, that deserves some thought. I don't think it's just semantics. Uh, because it is faith in Jesus Christ that brings us to salvation and not so much faith in the abstract. I think it's in keeping with the, the strategies of the adversary to get us to consider certain concepts in a vacuum or in the abstract and to dissociate them from uh, the fountain that they come from. Uh, another example of this is the atonement of Jesus Christ itself. If this as a concept is considered in the abstract and dissociated from the saving power of Jesus Christ himself, uh, the concept can lose its efficacy. President Nelson was crystal clear on this point in April of 2017. He said, There is no amorphous entity called the atonement upon which we may call for succor, healing, forgiveness, or power. Jesus Christ is the source. Sacred terms such as atonement and resurrection describe what the Savior did according to the Father's plan so that we may live with hope in this life and gain eternal life in the world to come. The Savior's atoning sacrifice, the central act of all human history, is best understood and appreciated when we expressly and clearly connect it to Him. I hope it's not inappropriate of me to uh, liken that to, to the expression of faith that we see here with Nephi. To say that faith as an abstract concept is, to use President Nelson's words, is best understood and appreciated when we expressly and clearly connect it to Him. So faith in Jesus Christ, and it is the power of Jesus Christ that did this great thing for Nephi. Yes, his faith did it, but it was the power of his it was the power of Jesus Christ that his faith accessed. And I, I think that is the subtle and important difference. Elder Renland spoke beautifully on this subject in the April 2019 conference. 
He said, most blessings that God desires to give us require action on our part, action based on our faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in the Savior is a principle of action and of power. First we act in faith, then the power comes, according to God's will and timing. The sequence is crucial. The required action, though, is always tiny when compared to the blessings we ultimately receive. He goes on to provide this example that can also make us think of the breaking of Nephi's bands. Consider what happened, says Elder Renland, when fiery flying serpents came among the ancient Israelites on their way to the promised land. The bite of a poisonous serpent was fatal, but a bitten individual could be healed by looking at a brass serpent fashioned by Moses and placed on a pole. How much energy does it take to look at something? All who looked accessed the powers of heaven and were healed. Other Israelites who were bitten failed to look at the brazen serpent and died. Perhaps they lacked the faith to look. Perhaps they did not believe that such a simple action could trigger the promised healing. Or perhaps they willfully hardened their hearts and rejected the counsel of God's prophet. So this incident uh, provides us with some wonderful teachings on faith, I think. And Nephi is such a remarkable model of faith in this instance. Again, how did he conceive of this as a possible option, that the Lord would break these bands? I, I think it's remarkable. I also think it's very helpful to remember that there's another time when Nephi is bound, and we'll read about this later in chapter 18. Uh, he doesn't enjoy the same outcome this time. He remains tied up for a very long time when he's on this ship, and, and even then we discover that his attitude is, uh, uh, is, is full of thankfulness and praise to God. So Nephi's incredible faith uh, did actuate God's power in both instances, but in the second, when he's tied up in the ship, that power comes, to quote Elder Renland, according to God's will and timing. Then uh, Nephi's modest, understated way is on display in verse 18, and so is his understanding of whose power is actually at play here when these bands were broken. He says in verse 18, And it came to pass that when I had said these words, behold, the bands were loosed from off my hands and feet. So he didn't say, I broke the bands. Uh, it's humble understatement. Uh, credit is never deflected away from God with Nephi. Uh, remember what he said in the previous chapter, the fullness of mine intent is to persuade men to come unto God. And he is going to stay true to that in every instance as he writes this record. And credit will go to where credit is due. So the bands were loosed from off my hands and feet, and I stood before my brethren, and I spake unto them again. Verse 19, And it came to pass that they were angry with me again, and sought to lay hands upon me. I, I think frenzy is still a good word for these antagonists. They were undeterred and were still determined to, to capture Nephi and leave him for dead, even after they had seen this happen. Luckily, however, as it says in verse 19, but behold, one of the daughters of Ishmael, one of the daughters of Ishmael, 
perhaps the one that is most sympathetic towards Nephi and who will later be his wife. Yea, and also her mother, and one of the sons of Ishmael, did plead with my brethren, insomuch that they did soften their hearts, and they did cease striving to take away my life. Here's a beautiful statement by Elder Gene R. Cook uh, before we move into the final section of this chapter, also referring to Nephi's faith and to whom he gave credit. He says, Note that they, uh, and, and in brackets, Nephi, Alma, and Amulek, that's who Elder Cook is talking about, did not have faith in their own strength. They trusted in the Lord and relied on his strength. It is faith in Christ that will deliver us from our own bonds. It is increasing our faith in Christ that will give us added power in prayer. Now back to the narrative. For some reason, this is the thing. Uh, when Nephi, when when Nephi's bands were broken, uh, his brothers were still going after him. But there was something about the way in which this daughter of Ishmael and her mother and also one of the sons of Ishmael, advocated for Nephi, that they turned. Uh, because something remarkable happens from this point forward in the story. In verse 20, And it came to pass that they were sorrowful because of their wickedness, insomuch that they did bow down before me and did plead with me that I would forgive them of the thing that they had done against me. To, to have them trying to capture Nephi and leave him for dead and to be de- devoured by wild animals and then later to have them bowing before him pleading for forgiveness uh, his brothers were a mess their moral compass was askew to say the least they seemed to know intuitively or at least they demonstrate that their own convictions weren't grounded in a system that would sustain them um you know, we wonder how the pendulum could shift like this so wildly. Uh, it, it seems to be one possible explanation for this is, is that Satan is, is really the one that's generating this frenzy. And because of Laman and Lemuel's spiritual state, he's, he's working through them. Uh, if you think back to the Sanhedrin, an example I referenced earlier, uh, you, you can... You, if, if Laman and Lemuel felt terrible guilt in this instance, can you imagine uh, that there could have been moments for at least some members of the Sanhedrin? Now, when we read Acts, we know that they're still um, still working to, to condemn the disciples of, of Christ. But nevertheless, it's really plausible that there were members of the Sanhedrin that would have experienced terrible guilt uh, and some of them, some of them must have faced that and felt that uh, once the moment had passed and the Savior fell into the hands of the Romans and into Pilate and into the Romans, and and, and Satan uh, had had abandoned them in some measure because he he had gotten what he needed out of these members of the Sanhedrin. I, I, this is conjecture to some degree, but that is how it ended for Judas Iscariot. He, he, he was in a state of, of terrible anguish. That seems to be what's happening here to Laman and Lemuel. Nephi amazes us once again with a feat that uh, might even be more impressive than the breaking of these bands. Uh, 
much like the Savior's miracles, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's incredible beyond description for him to walk on water and to turn water into wine and to multiply bread. But for the Savior to forgive all who had been involved in his crucifixion and for him to say, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do, perhaps that's his crowning achievement. And imagine how much more difficult it could have been for the Savior to forgive those, speaking of the Sanhedrin, who were most proximate to him and who were freshest in his memory, uh, who had just spat upon him and scourged him. Somehow he was able to do this. Uh, That is a display of power unlike anything else in Scripture. Well, here's a type of it by a very powerful disciple of Jesus Christ. Because in verse 21 we read, And it came to pass that I did frankly forgive them all that they had done. Uh, This is something not to take lightly. He was about to be left for dead. And I did exhort them that they would pray unto the Lord their God for forgiveness. And it came to pass that they did so. This is a man of uh, great character. He deflects credit for who breaks the bands. And here he immediately deflects credit and and foregoes uh, his claim to justice or pity and instead tells his antagonists to pray to the Lord for forgiveness in that moment. It came to pass that they did so. And after they had done praying unto the Lord, we did again travel on our journey towards the tent of our Father. Now verse 22, And it came to pass that we did come down into the tent of our Father. And after I and my brethren and all the house of Ishmael had come down unto the tent of my Father, they did give thanks unto the Lord their God, and they did offer sacrifice and burnt offerings unto him. We saw that there was an offer of sacrifice and burnt offerings at the end of the last journey as well, which is instructive because the element of sacrifice is there and so is the, the um, desire of forgiveness for sins that's embodied in the, in the burnt offerings. We have to wonder at this point, now that it's time in the record for this family to move on together deeper into the, into the wilderness and to migrate together, and of course, to spend time on a ship, as we know. How, how is it that Nephi's brothers could, could even look at him at this point? We wonder if irreparable damage has been done to their relationship. I think the answer is probably yes and no. I think yes in the sense that we know that the rift widens between Nephi and Laman and Lemuel to the degree that it becomes a rift between two peoples who ultimately separate from one another geographically and then they war against each other. And so just as the war in heaven continues, this battle will continue and will play out. So in that sense, Yes, irreparable damage was done, it seems. But, uh, and they separate in Second Nephi chapter 5, we'll read later. But in another sense, I think the answer is no, because I think that Nephi's forgiveness in this instance really was complete. 
I think he really was that remarkable and really was that able to tap in to the power of Jesus Christ and to frankly forgive. Uh, There's lots of evidence for that, that that was his ability and his mindset as this story progresses. Probably the most important piece of evidence of that is that Nephi had continued receptivity to the Holy Ghost as this story goes on. And we know that if he had receptivity to the Holy Ghost and continued communication with the Lord, that his heart would have been clear of, of, of the burden of holding a grudge against his brethren. But incredibly, his forgiveness was thorough. Well, that brings us to the end of this remarkable chapter. And here, I would like to end this by reading um, several paragraphs of commentary from Ogden and Skinner, who uh, summarize what has happened here in the last portion of this chapter. The final journey from Jerusalem to the Red Sea was not without the usual friction and even open conflict between Nephi and his elder brothers. Laman and Lemuel again vented their anger on Nephi to the point of physical violence. Why didn't Laman and Lemuel just get up one morning and make the hike back to Jerusalem? Why their incessant efforts to kill Lehi and Nephi and then go back to Jerusalem? Isaiah 53 verse 9 may give us insight by describing why Jesus was crucified, because he had done no violence or evil, neither was any deceit in his mouth, unquote. Few things can stir up anger in the unrighteous as much as confronting the truth. Laman and Lemuel knew that their father and brother were telling the truth and they were angry because of it. They were jealous and envious and proud. Some of the Jewish leaders had the same problem with Jesus. Nobody welcomed them into the city by throwing down palm fronds in their path. Nobody was being healed by them. There were no great crowds flocking around them to hang on their every word. Something had to be done about this righteous person who always spoke the truth. They had him crucified. The two eldest sons of Lehi had in their hearts to do likewise, slay their father and brother. The rebels were finally pacified only by the pleading of some of Ishmael's family. Their hearts were actually softened enough that they bowed down and asked Nephi's forgiveness. The greatness of Nephi's soul is again revealed in his terse summation of the episode, I did frankly forgive them all that they had done. Even after such rebelliousness, belligerence, rudeness, harshness, and spite, Nephi could frankly forgive. Is not this our own great charge? The Lord had now warned at least 18 people to flee from the wrath to come over Jerusalem. Lehi, Sariah, Laman, Lemuel, Sam, and Nephi, Zoram, Ishmael, and his wife, five daughters, and two sons with their wives. We do not know, but there may have also been children from the latter four. In some ways, it must have been a sacrifice for Lehi and his family to leave Jerusalem, but their lives were spared by doing so. What about the two other trips? The main reasons for the four men were commanded to trek a thousand miles through the inhospitable desert were one, records for knowledge of ancestry and prophecy, and two, marriages for posterity. What they were doing was tied to the past as well as to the future. They needed to preserve the knowledge and memory of one nation while producing with their wives another so that the covenants of the Lord might be fulfilled. And that brings us to the end 
of 1 Nephi chapter 7.